You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing fully integrated and optimised energy intelligence and storage for residential and commercial sites. And Solaray, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. Hello and welcome to this latest edition of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson, I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as usual is ITK Services Director David Leach. David, how are you? I'm very well, thanks, Charles. I trust all our listeners are enjoying the podcast and uh, what an exciting uh, week again it started out to be in electricity. Some big news today in Victoria. Well, some big news in Victoria, but David, I'm actually going to get to that later on. Um, Victoria, of course, we've written about um, all the um, problem, the wind and the solar delays and, um, and, and transmission constraints and the Victorian government has intervened in rather a dramatic way. Um, another sort of balkanisation, as I described it in the interview that we have later with Lily D'Ambrosio, the Energy Minister. But first, I wanted to touch on you. You've just been to Canberra for the day where the ANU have been, I think it's the ANU, been hosting a conference down there about sort of pathways to 100% renewables and other things. Tell me, um, tell, tell us a bit about the conference and, um, and what you heard. Well, unfortunately, I had to leave at the end of day one. My little consulting firm's got a bit of business on this week that has to. So, uh, but look, it was a terrific day today. I really uh, much better, I thought, for, than even than last year, which was the first year, as far as I know, this conference has been held. It had uh, over visiting uh, academics from overseas, uh, from Germany and from the United States. Uh, uh, talking about what was going on in some cases in, in their countries. And so I heard about three different ways that Japan could get to 100% renewables, either using exported hydrogen from Australia, uh, having a direct connection, uh, DC connection to China, which given the geopolitics, uh, although that was the cheapest option. <laughs> yes. <laughs> or by, in fact, uh, using their own offshore wind and, and solar resource, which turns out to be a lot bigger than expected. Uh, I heard how uh, hydrogen actually has still quite a lot of technical barriers to overcome, mainly because it's such an inefficient way. I mean, the round-trip efficiency of taking renewable energy in, this, in Australia and converting it to uh, back to electricity in Japan via hydrogen uh, is 30%. So no, irrespective of the cost, it's just a lot of energy in for the amount of energy out you get, and you're not going to get around that in a hurry. Uh, we looked at uh, high-voltage uh, transmission lines, uh, DC lines from North Queensland and to Darwin, and even over to Perth and uh, e examine those and what that would do for the cost of electricity in Australia. Um, and I also was interested to hear from uh, a professor from the Crawford School uh, at ANU that China now has, China, uh, the world's biggest uh, you know, carbon polluter, frankly, and uh, has a 35% uh, renewable portfolio objective. Uh, that's actually sort of law, more or less. Um, uh, but of course, these RPS are not always strictly enforced and a lot of problems, but it's one reason to expect uh, some more progress in China, uh, which I found quite encouraging. And there was also uh, a little bit of commentary about uh, Taiwan and South Korea, uh, showing how those countries are moving quite strongly towards uh, renewable energy and moving out of coal. I think it was South Korea that's uh, doubled its import tax on coal but they're not necessarily moving just to renewables. There's also an emphasis on gas. And then 
there was this discussion on gas, uh, whether it really has a, a role as a transition fuel. And I think from the point of view of climate change, it does not. There's just no time left for anything more than a very little bit of gas, as we discussed last week. So that was one of the best days I've had in a long time. I learned so much today, Giles, and I've got to give a special credit to Bruce Mountain, who I know uh, we have on here, not so much for what he said about, uh, he had a very interesting study uh, about uh, behind the meter and pointing out that in fact, uh, all, all the um, behind the meter actually reduced the cost of electricity for just about everyone. You might remember a couple of years ago, or even more than that, there was a uh, study came out of um, uh, uh, um, uh, uh, the Grattan Institute saying what a bad idea all those subsidies for rooftop solar had been to get it introduced. And Bruce said he had some pretty uh, definitive research showing that, in fact, it had reduced wholesale prices uh, and, uh, and it had reduced prices for consumers. So basically, everyone was better off, uh, uh, which was uh, I was pleased to hear that And uh, because I've always thought the Grattan School. But anyway, the main thing about Bruce was someone asked him a, a comment from the, from, from the floor about uh, what was a statcon. And a statcon is a, is a device broadly for able for reduce varying voltage all the time via reactive power. So that means you can export your rooftop solar a lot more. And that was all I knew. Uh, but Bruce was able to tell tell us all it was done by a transistor and what was going on. I was just incredibly impressed for an economist to start bursting out with all this stuff as if he'd done a lot of power engineering training. But there we go. Bloody hell! Who knew you? Who knew that you knew what he was talking about? There you go. Not just from an economist's point of view, but from an engineering. Um, David, that sounds fascinating. And um, look, um, probably don't have time to go into much detail on um, some of these ind individual um, presentations. But um, look, we might see if we can write about some of those things over the uh, next week or two. Fascinating, though, isn't it? That you've got all these major economies talking about one hundred percent renewables, not just for Australia and the US, Germany, Japan, and and elsewhere. Yet in Australia, we seem to sort of stuck in this. Old, in this old rush of talking about, oh, we need new technologies, as though um, you know we sort of ignore that the technologies that are there right in front of us, and uh, which can actually largely decarbonise the grid anyway, and probably help others decarbonise the grid. Well, it is funny. We've got a new code word. You know, we have we've got a new code word for coal. That's that means dispatchable. Right? We don't say coal anymore. Uh, we say, uh, we don't say uh, reliable. <laughs> Yes. safe and reliable power or something is what we say that's code for coal and we've now got a word for renewable uh, uh, technology renewable electricity and that's described as a technology solution <laughs> it's, it's a joke really I mean what is a technology solution <laughs> I didn't know, I don't know but it, it, it sounds pretty good <laughs> oh, makes look, you laugh absolutely yeah well, it makes you laugh, particularly some of the really dumb things they've said about the new technologies that have been brought into the market. And particularly, um, you know, Scott Morrison famously talked about the big battery as the, um, as um, what did he describe it? Um, you know, like the big prawn or the big banana and um, and some of the others compared it to the Kardashians and stuff like that. So they've been incredibly rude about new technologies. They've been incredibly rude about electric vehicles. It was going to kill the weekend. And Angus Taylor told us it was going to take five days to charge them with solar. And um, other people said they're better off walking to Wagga Wagga or Bathurst or wherever it was they were trying to get to with an electric vehicle. Um, yes, um, pretty interesting stuff. And... Um, um, Anyway, look, sorry, um, we had actually I, I, very good. good uh, sorry, one of the other things I didn't mention about the conference today was basically the general thrust of taking it beyond uh, electricity uh, to decarbonising the entire economy. And this distinction we make from uh, how, uh, the amount of renewable energy it takes to get rid of all the uh, fossil en energy and just talking about electricity. Uh, so there was, and there was a great presentation on uh, electric vehicles in general, not just. Uh, 
uh, cars, but uh, buses and uh, trucks and, and other things like that. Uh, the only depressing side of things is <laughs> I sort of felt I'd have to walk all the way back to from Canberra to Sydney rather than flying or driving. But then someone told me if I'd driven a uh, bicycle, uh, it was going to mean so much food uh, consumption that basically I wouldn't have done much. I'd, I'd have been better off driving anyway. <laughs> It's pretty hard. It's um, pretty hard to be a to be a, a straight, uh, you know, a pure pure environmentalist. To be, to uh, be carbon neutral, about. yes, yes, yeah. Well, there you go. Um, pretty thing. Look, David, I think it's probably time to um, move on to um, to our interview today. Um, now, um, you know, we, we've been documenting the problems from the northwest Victoria and southwest New South Wales. By the way, the uh, the West Murray link um, five solar farms curtailed. Um, basically, they're output cut in half. Another half a dozen tod. They're going to have to wait up to a year to actually connect what are pretty much completed systems and um, a whole bunch of others told that um, they're probably best off not even bothering thinking about it until a new transmission link has been drawn in. Naturally, this has frustrated um, the Victorian government and um, earlier today, Lily D'Ambrosio, the Energy Minister, announced um, that um, they were going to move away from the national electricity rules and introduce legislation into their own parliament to try and circumvent some of the problems. And I started off by asking her exactly what she was proposing and why. Well, look, we know, and Victoria's been a very strong advocate and uh, over a number of years, that we've got an energy system, a set of rules uh, that was set back in the, the 90s uh, and effectively haven't budged since then. Uh, in the meantime, uh, we are seeing some significant dra dramatic changes in the way that our system uh, has evolved. I mean, we've got uh, energy power that is generated at different points uh, uh, of transmission uh, networks. We've got um, rules that don't really uh, have the foresight or allow for foresight and planning ahead in terms of where uh, the transmission network upgrades ought to be, where, uh, where new power generators, if you like, and renewable energy uh, is being built. And uh, frankly, we're sick of uh, what's happening uh, at a national level. I mean, there's been too slow a response to the rules that need to be changed and altered uh, to allow for investment to continue to flow. And I'll say to you, Giles, quite frankly, I mean, it was only last week that I had a major investment, investor in, in, uh, in Australia and Victoria who came and basically wanted to express uh, his great frustration uh, in terms of uh, the, the barriers that are there, the regulatory barriers, uh, the, the physical barriers of our transmission network in terms of uh, not being able to hook up uh, new projects that are built. And, and he was very clear that in things, unless things changed, uh, they were going to you know, possibly bypass uh, Australia in terms of an investment, uh, uh, a place to invest because uh, if they get stopped uh, at the transmission point, well, then the full value of their projects are just never going to be realised. The other important thing, Giles, is that, you know, in northwestern Victoria, uh, we've got a number of uh, projects that have been built right now that have been curtailed in terms of the power they're able to send to the grid. Uh, and then we've got other projects that are either in planning stage or construction that are very uncertain about whether they're going to actually be able to connect up to the grid and be able to export uh, to their full capacity. This is a crazy situation and we just can't allow for it to continue. And so we've taken a, a very important decision 
Uh, it's one that we'll, we'll use very cautiously. Ultimately, uh, we're about uh, ensuring that all Victorian consumers, families and businesses get a reliable and affordable uh, and a secure energy system. At the moment, uh, we're far from that. Yeah. So you're proposing a change in the rules. What exactly are you proposing to change? And, and, and what is the forum for this change in these rules? Does it have to go through COAG? Is it an act of parliament? Or are you simply going to say, okay, we're taking over now, we're going to fund these transmission upgrades that may need to be done? Well, we're introducing legislation. I, I first read the legislation today. Tomorrow, it will actually uh, the legislation itself will be tabled uh, and so everyone will be able to see the legislation. But what the legislation uh, will allow us to do is uh, allow Victoria for particular projects uh, where we believe uh, must be fast-tracked uh, or where there's a, an element of urgency uh, to, for, for us to issue a ministerial order uh, and that will uh, can either modify uh, or, dis, uh, or, or displace, if you like, the, some of the existing national rules. So that's uh, what we're doing. And in its place, of course, would be uh, uh, a system, if you like, to ensure that uh, value for money uh, is uh, top of the list uh, for consumers. But importantly, this is about unlocking in a timely fashion the investment that we know uh, wants to come to our state uh, for renewable energy. And uh, the fact is, uh, whilst we have uh, this, the uncertainty and whilst we've got a system uh, that is uh, not able and uh, to, to make the changes, uh, to respond to the significant and rapid change of our system, well, that's costing all of us. Can anyone actually be truthful and say uh, that the system that we've got now that was set back in the 1990s uh, is actually good for us now. It's not. It's actually costing us money. It's driving up energy costs for everybody right now. So the legislation will go through the Victorian Parliament and then that will allow you, should it be passed then, to take the initiative and basically bypass the current system, which is basically a sort of, you know, the system based around the national electricity markets and going through the Australian regulator for all those regulatory investment tests and things like that. You're basically arguing that those sort of things are too slow um, to fill the needs of Victoria. They're not just, well, they're very slow, absolutely, as they are, because they were set in a different time. Now, 20 years ago, they would have been suitable because no one was foreseeing the, the rapid, the, the significant change, the dramatic change and the rapid change that we've been seeing now in the last five years. Uh, so they... They were set for a time where things were very stable in terms of where uh, the, the demand load was and where the energy generators were actually located. We're starting to see now the generators are starting to fail uh, and uh, they won't and, and therefore there'll be a need to uh, in, increase uh, the facilitation, if you like, of uh, new generators uh, coming into the system. But they're obviously going to come in areas that are not in those uh, areas that have traditionally been uh, the source of power for our state. And, and that's not just, of course, Victoria, but that's the case for, for the rest of the country and, and globally. And so we need to make sure that the transmission network is upgraded or we've got technologies that are deployed in a way uh, that is timely so that we can actually uh, continue to facilitate investment 
uh, in renewable energy projects because ultimately the more energy we can get in there, we know renewable energy is the quickest and the cheapest to build, uh, the quicker we can get those uh, into our system, uh, the more downward pressure there'll be on wholesale prices and that's a benefit for everyone. The important thing here though, Giles, is it's not just about the lack of timeliness in terms of the rules uh, being applied, but it's also the fact that the rules actually don't consider a number of um, uh, important matters uh, to act that actually triggers a need potentially for upgrades to transmission systems. So, for example, uh, there is no uh, allowance for um, uh, failing infrastructure, failing generators that uh, you would think would need to be an important consideration of any writ process uh, rather than waiting for a formal announcement to markets of any generators not being there. Uh, any Blind Freddy can tell you and can see right now uh, that we've got uh, generators that are failing us every single day. Uh, and it'd be uh, no, no other government worth its salt would just sit there and think, well, that, that system... Uh, and the rules that we've got now are actually uh, serving us well. They're not. They're failing us. So uh, we're absolutely committed to ensuring that we get value for money uh, for Victorians. That's just that's families and businesses, of course. Uh, but the fact is right now, uh, continuing to allow the system to run as it is, is actually costing everybody money. So you will actually put out to tender then your call for expressions of interest in, in building these new transmission lines and these grid upgrades that um, that have been identified as, as, as necessary by um, AEMO? Well, yes. So what, uh, what, we'll, what uh, we are doing, and uh, the market operator will uh, go out uh, by the end of this week to start a market sounding. Uh, and that uh, they will be looking to uh, put out uh, or release an expression of interest uh, process, kick that off uh, by uh, early mid-March sometime. Uh, now, obviously, we need this bill to get through both uh, Houses of Parliament. We'll be working very diligently uh, to get that through. Uh, but certainly, uh, we are, my department uh, is working with AEMO. Uh, they understand uh, what we're doing here, what the importance is of this legislation. Uh, and uh, very soon, by the end of the week, we'll start to see that market sounding commence. We're starting to see a whole bunch of bilateral deals. We've heard some bilateral deals done between the energy, Federal Energy Minister Angus Taylor with New South Wales and sort of intentions to do similar things with other states. We're almost sort of seeing the balkanisation now of the Australian market in some way because no one seems to be happy. We're not doing much at COAG um, and everyone's basically going it alone. South Australia's got its own target, which is quite ambitious for a Liberal government, in fact, quite ambitious for any government, really. Um, are, 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 is that what we're seeing now, the, the balkanisation of the grid? Well, look... Um... Um, I, I probably wouldn't use that that phrase, but but I, I think you are correct to say that there's a lot of growing disquiet amongst a number of jurisdictions, uh, regardless of their political persuasion. Um, um, I, you know, I'm not embarrassed to say I've got a lot in common with Matt Keane these days, uh, and frankly, because the states are the ones that uh, carry uh, uh, in in the public's eye. Uh, the responsibility uh, for ensuring that we've got uh, system security and that we've got reliability there. Uh, and we can see firsthand uh, the failings of our current system. And uh, I've been calling on uh, on all of the counter all of my COAG uh, uh, colleagues now for a number of years and the federal government that we've got to step up and we've got to take control of our own future. Uh, Victorians, um, 
deserve to have a system that is modern, as a 21st century system, not one that's stuck in the 20th century. Unfortunately, what we've got now is we're heavily reliant, too reliant, on a 20th century system. We've got uh, power generation that's being, of course, renewed and becoming uh, and, and, and uh, decarbonised, if you like. We're moving towards that. But we've also got to have the poles and wires and the transmission network uh, that is uh, built to be able to take on uh, where the new sources of uh, power is being generated and taking them to the demand load centres. So um, it's, it's a very, really, when you take, when you strip away the fact that we're talking about energy infrastructure here, this is a no-brainer. Anyone can see what needs to happen here. Anyone can see, mm. if anyone actually says that the current system now uh, is actually working for us, uh, well, I, I don't think anyone would be saying that now, Giles. No, look, I mean, I think it's probably been known for some time that um, grid upgrades were necessary in Victoria. So basically, you're saying then that you're not happy at the speed with which it's developing. And is it true to say also that some of the restrictions that have been placed on the grid by AEMA, particularly in northwestern Victoria, have taken people by surprise? And are you concerned that, you know, these massive constraints and these delays may actually impact on your government's ability to reach its um, own renewable targets? Well, look, the, the Australian Energy Market Operator uh, have got rules uh, within which they uh, are constrained to operate. Uh, they they can't just make up the rules as they go along. Uh, and uh, we've well, I've, I've had a lot of engagement with the market operator over a long period of month. I, I meet with them quite quite regularly and quite often these days. Uh, and uh, I don't think I'll be talk saying anything that's uh, that is secret that um, market operator and uh, Audrey Zebelin has been saying for a long time now that we need uh, rules changes. But the way that our system operates nationally is that the rules are made by one body, uh, the rules are enforced by another body, uh, and the whole uh, market is uh, is uh, made to operate in terms of uh, uh, supply and demand balance by another body. And we've had a, a COAG Energy uh, Council uh, who that has had a very poor leadership at the national level. We, we have the national government, the federal government, that actually decides uh, when these meetings happen. Uh, you'll recall, Giles, that um, we almost went through a whole year last year of not having any meetings. Um, we had one meeting in December. Uh, this is at a time where we need to actually have a much more hands-on approach. And Victoria's up for it. Um, not that I'm speaking on behalf of New South Wales, but I know they share my concerns. Uh, and, and uh, Giles, you, you'll recall that at, in December, at the December COAG Energy Council meeting, New South Wales actually made their own public commitment uh, around... Um, uh, going it alone in terms of uh, the rules that they need to support their uh, renewable energy zone. So they've carved out a, a, a role for themselves, a, a pathway. We're doing the same in Victoria and, uh, and, and we've got to do it. Um, uh, we've mm. got to do that if we're going to manage this transition in a way that is smooth and, uh, and gives us the reliability and security that uh, people deserve. Will you be cutting any bilateral deals with um, uh, the Federal Energy Minister? Well, interestingly, uh, Angus Taylor was very keen uh, in the lead-up to the December meeting uh, last year to talk to me and explain that he wanted to uh, strike a bilateral arrangement uh, with Victoria. Uh, that was that was the first and last time uh, we've spoken about it. Uh, we've not uh, I've not heard from him since. <laughs> so uh, whatever a bilateral arrangement might mean for Victoria, it hasn't been articulated. Uh, and it hasn't been progressed uh, with, with us.
Okay. But I would say, sorry, Charles, I would say though that uh, you know I know they've done a, a very um, uh, a very uh, big deal uh, with New South Wales, and and I would be very very clear in my language is that Victoria expects to get its fair share, uh, and uh, I do have some concern that they've yet to make an approach to us, but uh, I'm. I suppose that that will happen in, in due course. Uh, but uh, what's important here is that we're not going to be waiting around uh, for the Commonwealth uh, and we, we need to get on and do what we're doing uh, because, uh, you know, it's all about making sure that power remains affordable. Yeah. The key to that is getting more supply into the system and those projects need to have investors that are confident that when they build their projects, they're going to be able to get connected to the transmission network and actually get uh, the return on their investment. When they do that, you know, they continue to invest. We continue to get more clean energy into our system and we put down pressure on wholesale prices and we have a much more reliable and secure system. Okay. And will the government um, inject some money into some of those projects if necessary? Oh, look, you know, I'm not going to go down that road, Giles. I mean, th this is uh, an important big step right now that we're taking uh, with this legislation. Uh, we've charged uh, the market operator to go and uh, do some market soundings. Uh, we'll wait and see what they come back uh, to us with uh, and then we'll, we'll take from there. But I want to assure everybody uh, that uh, uh, whatever projects may come our way, uh, we will be running a ruler over every project, imply, uh, applying the, the, the high level of diligence and scrutiny uh, in terms of value for money for Victorians, that's families and businesses, and making sure that projects stack up. But, you know, we want to make sure that we get these things done in a way that is timely uh, and, uh, and optimises our investment opportunities here because all of that also includes jobs. Uh, we know there's thousands of jobs here that we want to see continue to grow in our state. Minister, thanks for joining Energy Insiders. Not at all, Giles. Thank you. And that was Lily D'Ambrosio, the Victoria Energy Minister. Um, David, uh, Lily didn't like my description of the balkanisation of the grid, but um, certainly um, not much is happening from the federal level, so the states are all doing their own things. We saw New South Wales pretty much do their own thing late last year, although they did get to cut a bilateral deal. Lily D'Ambrosio said that Taylor had um, Angus Taylor had actually approached her um, late last year about a bilateral deal, but she hadn't heard anything since. But um, there's certainly an awful lot of frustration um, with the um, the slow pace of... Um, oh, look, not, I mean, you've talked about it an awful lot, just about the, um, you know, the um, the, the transmission um, construction, but also the uh, the market rules, um, which, um, you know, pretty much the province of the AMC, which um, hasn't really lifted much of a finger. I even heard the uh, chairman of AEMO today saying that, you know, one of the two big policy debates is, uh, is between the amount of central control and the amount that you leave things to the market to determine. And the uh, nub of that debate has always been around transmission. Uh, and I think we've got to the state now where stage, I, I do see it as a war in the sense, not a, not a war of Liberals versus Labor, but I mean, it's a war to decarbonise, war zero, world war zero or something I've heard it described as. I don't really agree with that phrase, but I think the time for pussyfooting around on transmission has passed in Australia. Uh, we have to get on and build in some, and actually it's great to see the states running their own race. I think technically it could be described as a derogation in terms of how it could work in practice, Victoria could, just like in New South Wales, build the transmission uh, and then either uh, sell it to, to the um, 
have it right, sell it back to the transmission operator. Uh, and if there's a loss on the transaction because it can't all be rolled into the regulated asset base, uh, then then the Victorian government can easily wear that. Uh, so it's just a way of cutting through some of the long period, the two years of uh, doing an RIT test. And I, I strongly approve of it uh, myself. Yes, yes, absolutely. And I guess the transmission lines um, and also in the news because we saw um, South Australia uh, separated from the main grid um, just a couple of weeks ago through a storm um, that tore down a six towers of the um, 500 kilovolt um, line that links with Portland, sorry, Latrobe Valley in Portland and South Australia, finally reconnected to the, um, to the grid with a single circuit. But um, the South Australian grid seemed to operate pretty well um, when it was actually as an island. Um, look, I guess it's a bit of a, um, um, we had a story last week just sort of saying the key role that um, wind energy and the batteries and, and some solar also played in sort of keeping the grid together when the separation event happened. Um, a lot has moved forward since three and a half years ago when, of course, you know, a similar event tore it down and um, and basically the market operator and the, um, the grid owners were unprepared. But um, now, some people would criticise them for acting too conservatively, but um, they've kept the lights on. And um, remarkably enough, the share of renewables over the last couple of uh, weeks in South Australia was um, was over fifty percent. Look, I think it is a great achievement for AEMO, and I think AEMO actually has done it. it. It is a case of the learning rate. In this case, we're learning how to cope with transmission disasters, <laughs> not necessarily the learnings we wanted to have. But uh, in fact, the system is surviving uh, several near-death uh, experiences uh, that it's had during the bushfires. And as I said uh, previously, we are seeing lots of weather-induced problems, you know, extreme heat, bushfires, floods. All the weather is breaking up the transmission and the distribution system. It's not that we're running out of generation. It's weather-induced uh, problems. And so uh, we already talked, uh, Giles, about the one big debate in Australia, which is between central control and private ownership or, and the market making decisions. The other big debate, of course, is uh, how much uh, we need to have this transmission and uh, in front of the metre versus sort of growing the behind-the-metre resiliency and you can see this uh, South Australia islanding incident uh, as an example of a, 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 a very big small grid, because let's face it, South Australia is not a big system. It's about the same size as Ireland, uh, actually coping very well on its own. And even though it's far from got enough batteries yet, if it had been designed from that perspective. So that, they're the two big debates, as far as I'm concerned, uh, that we, we yet to see play mm. out. How mm. You know, it's interesting too. In fact, I was going to actually sort of throw back a question to you from the conference when they're talking about the HVDC links, because it was interesting that the one link that did survive between South Australia and Victoria was the Murray link, which is an, a high voltage um, DC line. It happens to be buried underground, so it wasn't um, wasn't prone to bushfires or storms or um, any other sort of damage. Um, they tend to be a bit more expensive. In this case, Murray link stood, but it doesn't actually provide any sort of um, synchronous um, power. So, you know, it, um, that's why um, South Australia was still t considered to be an island, even though there was a bit of um, trade between the two uh, in pure energy terms. Um, just briefly, David, are you able to sort of tell us about, you know, H you know HVDC links? I mean, is that seen as a economic and a, um, and a, and a desirable solution to, to, to link grids together? I had uh, Matt Stock uh, from ANU presented on uh, DC links essentially today, uh, only in the context of their economic value. And he was sort of critical of the ISP for choosing 
uh, AC links are the DC links. So for readers that aren't up on this, and that probably includes me, I'm going to tell you everything I know about it now in the next 10 seconds. Uh, essentially, <laughs> uh, uh, DC links have a lot lower line losses at carrying electricity over long distances. But DC links require expensive converter stations at either end to convert the uh, generation back into AC power uh, for each end. So the disadvantage for DC links is it's very hard to attach more renewable energy stations along the transmission line. So the transmission line from South Australia to New South Wales is AC. And one of the advantages of that line is it'll allow a lot of stuff to be connected along the way. But if you were bringing, uh, uh, you know, with North Queensland was a big topic because uh, North Queensland wind, as everyone I think knows now, is not correlated with the wind in the south of Australia. And so it's a great advantage. The wind there will be blowing when it's not blowing in other places and vice versa. And also the solar in Queensland, to an extent, particularly in summer, is running an hour behind, uh, apparently running an hour behind, and, and it's, it gets solar in winter in North Queensland as well. So there are lots of reasons to have renewable energy, but then you've got to get it to, there's no load in North Queensland, so you've got to bring it south. And so if you've got a lot of renewable energy up there and you want to bring it a long way, a DC link's uh, probably a very good idea. And I personally think that we could have a couple of what I might call these uh, super highways uh, forming a backbone uh, around the east coast of Australia and potentially eventually to West Australia. But certainly there's just a one from North Queensland down to Tasmania uh, that uh, that could... That, but they're the two no bookends. Right, yes, but no on or off ramps, as you um, as you say. Um, we just probably need to wrap up. I'd just like to put in a bit of a um, a, um, a plug for our um, sponsors, um, Solaray Energy and Evergen, and thank you very much for your ongoing support. Um, I just want to make mention before we do go, David, um, two big mining groups talking about renewable energy. Really interesting to see um, Oz Minerals talk more about their West Musgrave project. It's a $1 billion sort of nickel project on the border between South Australia and Northern Territory. They now see that um, as potentially powered 80% by uh, renewables, solar and wind and batteries, and that'll be a um, isolated grid um, powering that mine and um, the processing plant and Rio Tinto in um, in the Pilbara joining, um, well, sort of following in the footsteps of Fortescue and um, some of the other ones um, talking about um, a big solar farm there and a big battery and um, um providing using solar to provide all the daytime power for a new 2.6 billion dollar iron ore project so um fascinating to see those big mining giants um turning to turning to renewables uh i indeed Charles. as you say we, we we won't go into the politics of it now but i i, I do think that once the resources groups uh, uh start to come on board and they are we we, we go to them uh, uh renewables uh, energy in, in mines conference uh, in West Australia and, and you can see the progress that's been made. I mean, business is on board for doing something about carbon. I mean, the, um, the map can events of the world are getting increasingly isolated, but we should, we should leave that for another time. There's plenty of news going on in the industry itself without needing to bring the politics into it right now. Absolutely. And there's plenty of politics elsewhere. Well, thank you, David, once again. Um, um, fantastic input. Um, really enjoyed your um, contribution in reporting back from the conference in Canberra. Um, thank you to all the listeners. And um, we'll be back again at the same time next week. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. And please leave a review on Apple iTunes or whichever other platform you use. It does help us spread the word and become more visible and more popular to um, other potential listeners. Bye for now. 
Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, providing fully integrated and optimised energy intelligence and storage for residential and commercial sites. With technology developed in Australia with the CSIRO, Evergen customers can maximise the return on their sustainable energy investment. Visit evergen.com.au and take control of your energy bills. Energy Insiders is also sponsored by Solaray Energy. Experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring, they're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solaray.com.au and secure your energy future today.